Father in heaven, we are so grateful uh, to be with you and with one another this morning that you've given us life and breath uh, in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we have just celebrated his resurrection, we pray that you would give us even this morning more and more of the resurrection life, that we would put on Christ as we um, hear these words of him and as we talk with one another and then as we go to our work. Uh, Father, may we be the hands and feet of Christ in our city. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 15. And again, this is the words of Jesus right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is what he says. He says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I remember the first time I heard the Lord's Prayer. don't know if you remember the first time. First time I heard the Lord's Prayer, I was just a little boy. My father was a, uh, and still is, a doctor, but at that time he was a a doctor, just a town doctor in the small town of McGregor, Texas, outside of Waco. Waco is small enough. McGregor's even smaller. A little farming community, local uh, at the time. I think it was maybe even a 2A high school. It's a 3A high school now. And he, part of being the town doctor, which was just so much fun, he'd get pulled over and cops would put, you know, see him and say, oh, sorry, doc, and let him go. I mean, it's just that kind of town. And he was the volunteer uh, high school football team uh, medic. Uh, so by virtue of that, I got to be on the sidelines every single Friday night uh, with my dad. And, uh, you know, if a kid got hurt, if there was a hamstring pull, whatever, uh, he was the one that was helping out. And so part of that is we were in the locker room before every single game. And I remember, I, I still can hear it in my head as a little boy huddling with the team right before they got on the field, and they are begin the Lord's Prayer together, right? And it gets louder and louder and louder until it gets to thine is the glory forever, amen, and everybody, you know, cheers and freaks out and storms the field. And thinking, okay, what was that? <laughs> what just happened? I remember, you know, uh, growing up again in a Lutheran church, so you know my story, and going through our liturgy, saying the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday, and hearing it again and hearing it just rote memory coming off everyone's lips. I wonder this morning, what's the Lord's Prayer to you? What does it mean to you? Is it kind of like a cultural thing that I don't have anything uh, against what those boys did, and I pray actually they still do it. Uh, I'm sure many of them did not know the Lord at all as they were saying the Lord's Prayer before they stormed the field. There's nothing against that. There's nothing against us saying the Lord's Prayer word for word exactly as it is written. But this morning, what I want you to see is that what Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer is much more than just repeating, 
blindly, rotely, just a bunch of words on a page. And in fact, I think what we'll see, that's the opposite of what he has intended. And my hope this morning is, if nothing else, that when you do say the Lord's Prayer, or perhaps to even introduce it into your own time of prayer, that you would understand where it comes from. Or perhaps even further, that maybe you would begin what the Lord's Prayer has to say, but you would take those pieces, those elements, and begin to let the Lord's Prayer shape the way that you pray. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at just real quickly as an introduction, just the first couple of verses, the context of the Lord's Prayer. And then what I want to show you is six ways that I believe Jesus is teaching us to pray. And all of this is in contrast to the context. First, he's going to say, don't pray like this. And then he's going to say, pray like this. So how are we not to pray? I want you to look at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Now, it's been a week, and it's easy to forget, but if you were here a couple weeks ago when Chad taught about the importance of secrecy, uh, just earlier, what Jesus was saying is, hey, when you pray, don't pray like these hypocrites, right, who want to be seen by others. Now he's looking at the Gentiles, and what I want you to see is throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, listen, the Christian life, the kingdom life, is much deeper than any kind of religiosity that you will see in the, the hypocrites of the Pharisees. But it's also much deeper than any kind of pagan religion that's out there. It's something altogether different. Different than paganism, different than the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. It's completely different. And so, last time, he's picking out the hypocrites. Don't pray so people could hear you and think that you are holy. But now he's saying, hey, don't pray even as the Gentiles do, because this is what they used to do. The pagans used to think that the more verbose, the more loquacious, the more words that you used in a prayer, you could almost beat God to death with your prayer until he would finally give up. <laughs> He'd finally say, okay, fine, you win. Almost like my daughter right now is two. Literally, yesterday we're driving around town. She's literally going, mama, mama. Mom, it's like Stewie from Mama, Mama, Mama. And finally, we're like, Yes, Margaret, what do you want? And she just shows her a sippy and she goes, Sippy. And you're like, Okay. But that's, I mean, they're literally, they would just pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. And the words meant nothing to them. The words of their prayers meant absolutely nothing to them. They were just over and over through these rituals, these blind rituals. So many words. Jesus is saying, don't pray like the Gentiles, like the pagans. Don't pray like them. He says, do not heap up empty phrases. They think they will be heard for their many words. You know, I wonder how many times we even treat prayer like that. That perhaps we could even do it with the Lord's Prayer. That we would take a bunch of words that we've been taught, heap them up on the Lord and think it's prayer. And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us, listen, prayer is much deeper than that. It's much more intimate than that. Prayer has to do with as much as about the prayer, the words of your prayer, it has to do with your posture. It has to do with your posture. It has to do with how you relate now to God as a man in the kingdom of God. Furthermore, in verse 8, he says this, and this has always struck, I think, many people. What do you do with this? He says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need 
before you ask him. So again, you can't extract this verse from the one before. A lot of times people try to do that because it's a very provocative statement. What Jesus just said is, listen, God knows what you need before you even ask him. So people always like to say, well, then why pray? <laughs> I mean, why pray? If, if God knows what you need, then what's the point of prayer? But I think Jesus is not just trying to give us this big theological idea. I think he's actually trying to teach us the point of prayer. He's connecting it to the voice verse before. He's saying, listen, don't just heap up empty words, empty phrases. But listen, hey, God already knows. He already knows what you need. So it's not about just these empty words that you're heaping up upon him. No, it's something much deeper than that. If God already knows what you need before you even ask him, then what's the point of prayer? The point of prayer is to bow before God as our Father, as our Creator, as our King, and to recognize He's God and we are not. And yet He has graciously invited us into deep, intimate fellowship with Him. And so the reason I think so many of us as men struggle with prayer is not just because we're lazy, not just because we're arrogant, but I think deep down, we struggle with how we relate to God. In many ways, I think we struggle with how we relate to anyone. But all that's rooted in that we struggle with how we relate to God. I think what Jesus is trying to give us this morning is, as a man, here is how you relate to God in prayer. Not like a Gentile who's just going to spew empty words. Not like a Pharisee who wants to be seen but as a man who's intimately connected by the blood of Jesus Christ. All right, so six ways that we see that real quickly this morning. Six ways. The first is this. We're called to pray as sons. Don't pray like a Gentile. Pray as a son. Pray as a son. And you could write this, if you want to, in the margin, right next to this phrase. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. I think the one thing I love about the Lord's Prayer, and I incorporate this in everything I pray now, is I begin with our Father, and that's no small thing. That's no small thing. Rather than saying God or, or Jesus or even the Trinity, to, to begin with Father is no small thing because the only way that you can call God Father is if you have now become a son. And so to begin this way in your prayer life, for the Lord's Prayer to begin this way is acknowledging, I now have been adopted into the kingdom of God. I've been adopted into the family. That I who was once far off, if you remember our study of Romans, I was once an orphan who was cut off, who was an orphan and, and loved. I picked my orphanage, right? I, I rebelled against my God and my Father, and yet He died for me. He sent His only Son to die in my place that I could become one of His sons. And so right out of the gate, to pray the Lord's Prayer and to say, Our Father is immediately acknowledging this unbelievable reality that you have been called as sons into the family of God, that you who were once a sinner, you were a traitor, you were against the kingdom, have been invited now to the king's table, not just as just one of his subjects, and we'll talk about being his servants in a second, but first and foremost, as a son, our Father in heaven. 
we have a Father who loves us, who loved us so much He sent His only Son to die in our place that we now could become His sons. Romans 8 talks about our sonship and prayer in this way. Romans 8 verse 14, he says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you did not read the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You have been given the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you, and by that Spirit you have been adopted as sons of God Himself, and by Him you now are able to call Him Abba, Daddy, Father. And so I don't know what kind of relationship you've had with your own father. I don't know what kind of father you are. But God is a perfect father who loves perfectly. And this matters in our prayer. Paul goes on to Romans 8, 26, and he says the spirit, that same spirit who's given us adoption as sons, he says, helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't know what we should even pray for. But think about your relationship with your kids and what they ask you for. Do they always know the right things to ask for? Do sometimes they ask for things that they shouldn't have? And what's your answer? Well, no. No, you, you can't have that sword. That's a bad idea. I'm not going to give you that, right? <laughs> But I really want it. No, you can't have that. It's going to hurt you. Or sometimes they're not asking for things and you're giving them this way. And they might even say, I don't want that. But you as a good father knows what they need, even though they don't. Do you see how our sonship shapes not only our relationship, but even the way that we pray? God knows what you need even before you ask him why. Because he's a good father. He knows you as his son. He knows what you need. And you might ask him for things that he's not going to give you because you don't need those. And he might not, you might not ask him for things, and he's going to give you those anyways. Right? He's a good father who knows you. And so part of prayer is to begin with that reality. I would even challenge you today, maybe even if you think about putting these into practice, don't do them all at once. Pick one a day. Just start with this one today and meditate on the reality that you are. I mean, don't even get past our Father. <laughs> and just meditate on that today, that you are a son of God. Um, Michael Green, is just a commentator, says this about prayer. He says, prayer is not informing God of something that he does not already know. Right? <laughs> you're not telling God something new when you're praying. That's not the point, he says. He says, nor is prayer seeking to get God to change his mind. No, prayer is the adoring submission of creature to creator, disciple to master, and I would add son to a father. The adoring submission of a son to a father. That's the point of prayer. Second, again, don't pray as the Gentiles do. Pray as sons. Also pray as worshipers. Pray as worshipers. You can write this in the margin again to next to hallowed be your name. So our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. The, the prayer doesn't go much further before it enters into worship. And I wonder how much of our prayer life would you categorize as worship? That when you find yourself praying, do you immediately go to your list of things 
or if you were to go back and write down your prayers, and maybe perhaps some of you do write down your prayers. It's a great discipline that I don't practice myself, <laughs> but I should. But if you write down your prayers and go back and read them, I wonder how much would you learn about if somebody read those? How much would somebody learn about you? And how much would somebody learn about God? How much would somebody learn about you from reading your prayers? And how much would somebody actually learn about God, who he is and what he has done for you? The Lord's Prayer says, hallowed be your name. It's worship. And we see this throughout the Bible. Prayers of adoration, prayers of worship. That really, we should not really go much further in our prayer life before we start with not who we are and what we need, but we must begin with who God is. He's Father, and He is our God to be worshipped. And I think the greatest example of this is in Ephesians 1. You can turn here if you want, or you can just listen. It's one of my favorite verses of the Bible. I say verses, it's really one giant sentence uh, that spans many, many verses. And in one sentence, Paul, in a prayer, just meditates and worships on the character of God and what he is, what he has done for us. Ephesians 1 verse 15 is where the sentence begins. And this sentence goes all the way to verse 23. I want to read it to you. I want you to listen. Listen for the worship of Paul's prayer. What is he saying about God? How is he worshiping him? He says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord... Jesus and love towards all the saints, I do not give, cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Okay, so here's his prayer. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints." What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe, according to the working of his great might? He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's an amazing prayer, that our prayers would be shaped by this kind of prayer, that as we begin in our prayer to worship. Now again, it's not about the amount of words you use or your theological language. Jesus gives us a great model. It doesn't have to be a lot. Hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Pray as sons, pray as worshipers. Third, don't pray as Gentiles, but pray as servants. Pray as servants, you are a son, you have been created to be a worshiper, and you are a servant. Verse 10, you can write this in the margin next to this, says, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We are sons, we are worshipers, we are also servants. I think beyond our difficulty in our relationship with God at times, I think at the center of it is this tension right here. That in our arrogance, we do not want to bow before his will. In our arrogance sometimes, that can leave us bitter. Uh, like a dear friend of mine could leave us very angry. Sometimes we struggle to pray in the same way we struggle to talk to our own fathers if we're angry at them. Because we don't like what he's given us. 
And we know it's not the issue of sovereignty. We know that makes it worse. That if God was so powerful and he was so good, then why would he do this? And inherent in all of that is this tension of we, we know that his will wins out and we don't like his will. Do you approach God with a posture of servitude? Of recognizing it's not your will to be done in prayer but it's his. Now, this tension can be very difficult to try to navigate. Because on the one hand, I think sometimes we might make the error of just going after God and saying, I'm presuming upon his will. And, um, you know, I've got friends who are like this. Uh, the name it, claim it types, right? They say, well, I'm just, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to name it. And here's what's going to, and by my faith, this is what needs to happen. Not necessarily God's will, but my will be done, and I'm just saying God bless this, right? But on the other hand, and sometimes this is what a lot of Presbyterians can be like, right? We're so focused on his will that we're almost scared to pray for things boldly. Almost scared to pray for things that seem impossible. And so we'll kind of say, oh, okay, well, you know, I know you're God, and so I don't want to just kind of do what you want, you know? Or why even pray? We can almost get fatalistic about it. Why even pray? He's going to do it anyways. But, but I think what we need to recognize is God's calling us to bring our every single need. We'll see that in a second. No matter how insurmountable it might seem. But hold that, those desires in tension with, it is not our will to be done, it's His. And it's only where those two things really collide, that's really where prayer happens. And you can easily go on one or the other, but really... You're not really praying if you say, okay, God, I'm just bringing my list to you and bless it. But I would also say you're not really praying if you're just kind of saying, well, God, you just do what you want. I don't, I mean, you know, whatever. But to really earnestly bring every single deep desire and then hold that in the tension of it's not my will. R.C. Sproul says this in, in a great little book in Lord's Prayer, Lord, Prayer of the Lord is what it's called. He says this, he says, when we come before God, we must remember two simple facts, who he is and who we are. We must remember that we're talking to the king, the sovereign one, the creator, but we are only creatures. If we keep those facts in mind, we will pray very politely. <laughs> like how he said, very R.C. Sproul. <laughs> we'll be very polite, right, as we approach him. But you see what he's saying? He's talking about our posture. He says, we'll say, by your leave, as you wish, if you please. That's the way we go before God. To say that it is a manifestation of unbelief or weakness of faith to say to God, if it be your will, is slander to the very Lord of the Lord's Prayer. So we must recognize we're, we're, we're servants. And probably the best picture that we have in this was we just talked about, Chad just preached on on Thursday night. The suffering servant, Jesus Christ in the garden, who said, if it's possible, here's an impossible prayer. <laughs> if it's possible, take this cup of wrath from me. I mean, Jesus knew. He'd been preaching on it to his disciples, had no idea. He knew that that's what he was called to do. And yet an impossible prayer in the midst of agony and anguish says, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And then what does he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus for us is this picture of a suffering servant. That's what we are called to be. Jesus the Son we now as sons, a servant, we're called to be servants. Okay, fourth, fourth, 
we're called to pray not only as servants, but we're called to pray as beggars. We're called to pray as beggars. We're called to pray as beggars. And you can write this next to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. I want you to think about, I mean, just start there. Just think about that statement, that petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Think about that. How often would you need to pray this prayer if you were following it to a T? Every day. So it's not, you're not saying, hey, God, give me my week's bread. Now I'm covered. <laughs> All right, you know, let's just make it a year. Actually, let's just do lifetime. Now we're good, right? <laughs> no, you're saying daily. Daily. And I think there's something beautiful about that. That's not just presuming upon, you know, his grace in the future, but it's saying, listen, every single day, every single thing we need to pray for, everything. And so one of the questions at your tables this morning, a great thing to wrestle with, is there anything too small to pray for? Is there anything too small? You know, maybe you've said that before. Oh, God doesn't care about that, you know. Is there anything too small? Is there anything too big? Is there anything that you're like, well, I mean, that's just impossible. He would never do that. Right? And by big, I mean, you know, it could be thing like healing cancer, right? Healing disease, right? Getting you out of debt. Now, it might come with a great deal of difficulty, all those things. But to pray boldly, but also small things. I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, to win a football game. It's interesting. It's like, who was the blasphemy? <laughs> the person who lost, who prayed that God, they would win, you know? <laughs> there was, there's always probably two prayers on both sides. I wonder who, yeah, it's just really funny that we do that. But too small. I mean, think about the, your daily everything. What would it be like if you, you said, I mean, again, think about it. He's not saying as the Gentiles do, these long, verbose prayers. But if you said just a little quick prayer before you made that business call, right? Or if you knew you had a hard conversation to happen with one of your employees or a coworker, and rather than just, and I know you do this, right? You're stewing through like, okay, here's what I'm going to say, and I know what they're going to say, and here's how I'm going to say to that, right? Rather than doing that, what if you just, real quickly, you prayed? God, be in this conversation. Be with my own posture. Be with the way that I treat this person. Help me to be a picture of the gospel of grace as I have this conversation. Amen. Is there anything too small? He says, give us this day our daily bread. And a part of this, I think, is recognized we're, we're nothing but beggars. We've talked about this before in this Bible study. But we, we presume so much as men, don't we? I mean, we think everything that we have, we've earned, right? We've worked for it. Right? We're constantly calculating how to get more, how to change the fortune of our lives, how to do this or do that. We don't recognize that we are literally, we are beggars. There is nothing that we have that hasn't been given to us. We cannot say that enough to ourselves. Everything that we possess has been, you are nothing but a beggar. And I think the heart of this prayer, give us this day our daily bread, is like that of a beggar. Just sitting there on the side of a road with hands up with nothing to show for it and just saying, please, will anybody just give me bread, give me something to eat? Do you recognize that you are nothing but a beggar? The Gospel of Mark tells us the story of a beggar. 
think, a great picture of us of what this looks like. Mark 10, verse 46. The disciples and Jesus come to Jericho. Jesus was leaving Jericho with the disciples, the great crowd, and Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said, go on your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. A few things I want you to notice about Bartimaeus. He's a blind beggar. He can't see. He has nothing. He's begging people in order to survive. And he knows that Jesus, the son of David, is there. And he says, have mercy on me. And then what happens? He's rebuked. Go away, beggar. But think about it. If you are truly a beggar, would something like that stop you? <laughs> no. No, he cries out even louder. Have mercy on me. We need to begin to learn what it looks like to pray like Bartimaeus, right? As beggars, give us this day our daily bread. Have mercy on me. Is there anything too small for God? We're nothing but beggars. Okay, fifth, real quickly. Called to pray as beggars, we're also called to pray as debtors. Verse 12. To pray as debtors. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Not only do we not really have anything as beggars, but we are actually in debt. We actually owe. We are in the red. We are in the negative. It's not that we don't have anything. We are in debt we are debtors. And here Jesus is saying, forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors to recognize we owe so much in our sin. And we've been forgiven so much. And so why not should we then in turn also forgive those who have debts against us, right? Who we have debts against. And he reiterates this in verses 14 and 15 where he says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your fatherly your Father in heaven will forgive you. If you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will their Father forgive your trespasses. But it's this idea that, listen, if you really understood the gospel, if you understood how much you have been forgiven, that not only are you a beggar, but you are a debtor, you are in debt, and yet God has forgiven all, then how could you hold debts against others? How could you not freely forgive, right? And this is the heart of this part of this prayer. Not only that you would forgive our sins, our debts, but that we would forgive those who sin against us. And we actually do. We need to pray for that. It's not easy to forgive one another. And we need to ask that God would give us grace. Grace to order to forgive. Why? Because he's forgiven us. Romans 8, verses 11 and 12. Uh, one of my favorite verses for Easter. Um, quoted this on Sunday morning at the 11 o'clock service. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Right? He who's now dwelling in you, that same spirit is now given life to your mortal bodies. The same spirit that rose Christ from the dead now dwelling within you. And then this is what he says in verse 12. He says, so then, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But if you live according to the flesh, you will die. If by the spirit you put the deed to the body, you will live. 
We're, de- we're debtors. Not, ac- not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Right? We, we owe everything. But Jesus truly has paid it all. All right? Last thing this morning, and then we'll send you your tables. The sixth way, again, not to pray as a Gentile, but to pray as a conqueror. To pray as a conqueror. Verse 13. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you were here on Palm Sunday, we heard a great sermon by Vincent Parker talking about this reality that we know the end of the story. We know that one day we will conquer all things, that Christ will return, and when he does, he will make all things new. And that should do the opposite of keeping us from praying. It should be the opposite of fatalism. It should be the opposite of saying, well, why even bother praying if we know the end of the story? No, it should actually give us confidence, boldness. It should give us hope in our prayer that we know that we are conquerors, not because of us, but because of him. And we see this here in this way, and it's a very, very, it's pretty cool, actually. I was taught this by one of my professors in seminary. But the connection here, and you might easily miss it, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, it doesn't matter one way or the other, but you could translate the word evil in the Greek, literally as the word evil one, right? So not just this general idea of evil, right, that's out there, but literally in the Greek, the word is evil one. Well, who is the evil one? Well, Satan himself, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The other word to notice is a very interesting choice of words, the word lead. What an odd way to pray, right? Don't lead me to temptation. There's a lot of ways we could say that. Keep me from temptation, right? Guard me from temptation, protect me from temptation. But no, do not lead me from temptation. That's what Jesus says. Why would he say it that way? Any ideas? Because he was once led to temptation by God himself. And this world in this morning. By God himself. Matthew 4, a couple chapters earlier, we're told this, Matthew 4, verse 1, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Why? Because Jesus is about to reenact every failure of Israel, and he's going to conquer them all. He's going to be tempted to prove that he is the Son of God other than going to the cross. And he's going to withstand that temptation and say, no, I'm going to the cross. He has conquered sin and death and every temptation on our behalf. And to pray, lead me not temptation, but deliver me from the evil one is saying, I can't do what Jesus did. I can't go into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and come out alive. I can't do it. And so don't do to me what you did to Jesus in the wilderness. But lead me not to temptation and deliver me from the evil one. We are not conquerors in and of ourselves. No, we have a conqueror named Jesus Christ who went into the wilderness. He conquered sin. He conquered death. Right? The ultimate wilderness at the cross. And now this is why Paul says in verse eight, eight, Romans 8, 37, that we are now more than conquerors through him who loved us. What can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ? Nothing. We are more than conquerors. You can pray with boldness and confidence because in Jesus Christ, you are now a conqueror. 
And you can, through, by his power, not your own, overcome even sin and death. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, I pray, God, that you would be with these men as they discuss your Lord's Prayer. I pray for myself this week that I would put these things into practice, that I would not only pray the Lord's Prayer as it is, but I would think about what it is that you've taught us through your son Jesus, what he's taught us. Not only the prayer itself, but the posture behind the prayer, and that you would help us all to be sons, to be beggars, to be servants, to be worshipers. Father, to recognize that we are conquerors. We pray that you would do these things for us. Teach us to pray, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.